My name is Paul Butler. I'm a law professor at Georgetown and the author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men, and Let's Get Free, A Hip-Hop Theory of Justice. I've known Diane Reem for at least 25 years. I've been a guest in her program. What I appreciate about the podcast is she is still up to date and she still keeps her listeners up to date with what's in the news right now. I'm really glad that she still has this forum, that we still have this opportunity to process the news. I think a lot of us find Diane's voice a comfort. That's why she's so good at what she does. Hi, it's Diane. On my mind, a tale of two visits to Kenosha, Wisconsin. This week, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden traveled to Kenosha. It's been thrown into turmoil by a police shooting and the killing of two protesters. What the presidential contenders did there and who they talked to reveals a great deal about the messages of their respected campaigns. Now, with just eight weeks until the election, it's clear the issues of racial justice and law and order will remain front and center. Conventional wisdom says this helps Trump. David Graham is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He says Kenosha might actually be Trump's undoing. I spoke with him Friday morning. David, President Trump went to Kenosha this week, even though he had been asked by both the governor and the mayor not to come. Why did he go? Trump really sees an upside to these protests. I think he believes that a lot of people want a steady hand and they're rattled by um, seeing people in the streets and they're rattled by the kind of scenes of, of destruction that you saw as a backdrop to his visit. And he thinks that that's going to help him at a time when he otherwise uh, is struggling with voters. You know, the, the economy is still not strong, although he gets good ratings on it. Most of all, the pandemic is still very bad. And anything that distracts from that, I think he sees as a chance to change the subject and to make himself look strong. So during the uh, campaign in 2016, he said he was the only one who could fix all this crime, all these riots, everything going on. He's the president, and he's not been able to do so. So did his trip to Kenosha help or hurt? Well, it's interesting. During the RNC, you saw them talking about if you elect Joe Biden, you'll have protests in the street, there will be riots, <laughs> which is, of course, what is happening right now in Trump's America. So I think those start to, to ring false. And that is one of the problems. Not only does the warning ring hollow when these things are already happening and when he has promised that he is the person who can fix it. You know, if you're the law and order president, you have to actually deliver law and order. And, and in fact, what we're seeing is chaos. So there's that problem of, of not sort of delivering on what he offered. I think the other problem is that people, Americans believe by pretty strong margins that Trump is making these things worse. So not only is he not fixing them, but his presence exacerbates it. Is it changing the numbers at all? I don't see a clear change in the numbers. You know, when we looked a few days ago, there were a lot of predictions that this would result in a swing towards Trump. And the polls are maybe a little bit tighter than they were seven or 10 days ago, but there's been no major swing. And I don't think that's coming on the back of the protests, simply because 
we see you know, a majority of voters think that if Trump is elected, protests will get worse, and a plurality thinks they'll get better if Joe Biden wins. A uh, majority believes he's making the protest worse in another poll. Majorities still think that the pandemic is a more important voting issue than protests. So if there's movement, it doesn't seem to be because people approve of his uh, handling of this. He started to talk in the last few days about immigrants from Central America, sort of returning to that whole build-the-wall concept. Is that part of the strategy because he sees himself sort of weakening in key states? Yeah, I think Trump has this sort of play-the-hits approach that he'll sometimes use. And we saw this even in 2016. He talked in an interview about how when he was at a campaign rally, if attention seemed to start to flag, he would immediately come back to the wall, say, build the wall. And that would bring people back with him and, and it would get the attention there. I think he's trying to do a similar thing in a broader sense. He understands that pandemic response is not going well for him. Uh, he understands the economy is weaker, even if he still does okay on it. And he's looking for something else that might grab um, sympathy and sort of bring people back to his side, bring leading voters back to his side. When he speaks about individuals who are part of the groups that are rioting, he sort of differentiates between those who seem to want to be on the side of the police and those who seem to be forming because they are angry about police action. So what is his vision there? There's a, an interesting division in how he talks about people and how he talks about protests. So there were these protests outside the RNC, and you could hear them, in fact, while he was giving his acceptance speech last week. On Friday, during a press gaggle, he said, you know, these aren't protesters, they're thugs, they're rebels, uh, they're trying to stir up trouble. By contrast, when he's asked about conservative groups that were parading through the streets of Portland, he says, these are peaceful protesters they're on the side of law and order. So there's a, a real double standard. And I think there's a contrast here with Joe Biden, who has opted to just condemn all kinds of violence. And the Trump campaign really dared him to come out and condemn violence, thinking that Biden would be unwilling to do that for fear of offending the you know, left-leaning side of his coalition. But Biden did that and sort of tossed the gauntlet back at Trump. Uh, and Trump draws this distinction. Basically, if you were complimentary to Trump, if you're on his side in some way, uh, he'll give you a pass. And if you're against him, he uh, seems to believe that you are acting outside of the First Amendment. You're not really exercising your rights. You're just trying to cause trouble and insurrection. Interesting. Some are now making comparisons between the riots happening now to what happened in 1968 when Richard Nixon called himself the law and order president and was running against Hubert Humphrey. Do you see comparisons there to the rioting that broke out after Martin Luther King was assassinated and Nixon, of course, condemned that? Do you see comparisons going on here? I think that's a useful but limited comparison. So it's useful insofar as we have a sort of similar major national movement. You have people who are very upset who are taking to the streets, and you have it coming in the heat of a, a divisive presidential campaign. It makes sense that, um, that we would look to that comparison. I don't think it totally holds up, or it's not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison for a few reasons. One is the, the composition of the protests. So as we saw this summer, 
Uh, it, these are really diverse multiracial protests. It's, it's not just African-Americans in the streets. It's not just blacks. It's a, you get all kinds of people. And I think that is a big difference from 1968. I think that the general political context has changed. This is not 1968. In a lot of ways, uh, politics have changed. People are in a different place on race. They just don't view things in the same way. And third, and there are probably other things, but I think third, Trump has really aimed a lot of this criticism at, at suburban voters. Um, and he seems to be trying to gin up a very um, white flight oriented way to think about protests. And I think that is him thinking back to 1968 and him thinking to the sort of developments that he has done and his own upbringing in outer Queens. But the suburbs today are not what he seems to imagine. They're, they're much more diverse than they were. Um, they're not as conservative as, as they were. So you're not really appealing to the same sort of uh, Eisenhower suburbs that Trump seems to imagine. And as a result, I don't think it resonates in the same way. What did he accomplish when he was in Kenosha? I think he, he really consolidates a point. People who believe that um, there are radical extremists and radical leftists out fomenting violence and that um, you know, the police need support see this and they respond well to it. They, you know, they're glad to see somebody sticking up for order and they are glad that he's willing to defend the police. And I think in a lot of ways, he, he's not far off of um, a response that might be able to be very effective. People don't like disorder. It's, it, people don't like riots. They don't like to see things burning. You know, even a lot of people who are supportive of Black Lives Matter's protests don't want to see this sort of thing. But he seems to struggle to stop there. He always goes a little bit further. So he has to, for example, defend Kyle Rittenhouse, but not speak Jacob Blake's name. And he has to draw division between peaceful protests, so-called peaceful protesters on his side and the other ones. So he, he is not merely um, sticking to that that comforting note, he's going a little bit further, and I think that's maybe where he gets into trouble. And, of course, Wisconsin is such a key state for him. That's right. And I think the Trump campaign thinks that it's still winnable. They talk about how Joe Biden bailed on the, the DNC and, and didn't go to Wisconsin. His first trip to Wisconsin was, was just this week. And they see that as a place to sort of point out that he's not there and to um, appeal to white voters, I think, in parts of the state outside of Milwaukee and Kenosha to say, you know, if you vote for Biden, what you're going to see is sort of the Milwaukeeification or the, or the, you know, it'll all become Milwaukee and Madison. Is that what you really want? Um, and it's, I think it's a little early to see how that works in Wisconsin. Nationally, it doesn't really seem to play. But you and a lot of other people have suggested that Kenosha could be a key, an important key to this election. How so? That's right. So earlier this summer when we saw these protests, this is, I think the, the historical background or recent historical background is why I think this. Earlier this summer when we saw protests, it seemed like a moment where Trump was going to pull the law and order card and it could be really effective. He initially said, you know, expressed regret for George Floyd's death um, and he spoke about it in, in a, a fairly measured way and then quickly became um, much more agitated. And he started complaining about attacks on the police. He said the police needed to be defended. Um, he, of course, had the, the infamous clearing of Lafayette Square so he could visit St. John's Church um, and went with this really hard law and order message. And what happened is it backfired very badly on him. Not only did that photo op not work well for him, um, but people started to question his handling of race, his handling of the protests. And when the uh, race went from a five to six point race to an eight to 10 point race, that's when it happened. It was because people were appalled by that and they were particularly upset about his handling of race and protests. So fast forward a couple months, 
We have another situation, more protests. Uh, and Trump seems to think maybe if I push just a little bit harder on this law and order message, eventually it's going to get through. Uh, but I think it's more likely that we're going to get the same effect that we saw in June. Even people who think that uh, riots are bad understand that there's a, a real anger about police violence against black people. And they see that. They see the, the parade of incidents and they think that it's a, a complicated issue. They're not willing to just say that the police are in the right. And the very early polling we have from the last few days suggests, once again, people don't think Trump is doing a good job at the protests. They don't agree with him, even if they don't like riots. What about the economy and COVID and how they figure in to these concerns about rioting in various parts of the country? Yeah, I think it cuts in a couple different ways. You do see people complaining that, you know, marches and protests, the, the march in Washington, for example, is a potential super spreader event. And they say, why is it that when right wing protesters show up in Lansing or other state capitals, it's a major public health risk. But when Black Lives Matter protesters are in uh, the streets of Washington, this is somehow a righteous thing. And I, it's hard to measure quite how that resonates, although I think there's a, these are two gatherings and there is a risk to those things. The economy interplay, I, I, it's less clear. The economy is still strong, Trump's strongest subject. Um, it's what voters rate him the highest on, more than anything else, uh, even with uh, unemployment high and, and with the struggles from, from the pandemic. Um, people maybe give him a, a little bit of leeway and understand that the pandemic is, uh, is a major event. So I think he, he perhaps would do better by turning attention to the economy, but he seems reluctant to do that um, or, or unable to do that at length. And it may be that he is concerned that if you do that um, at length, people will start to understand that maybe the economy is not as good as they think. Um, or it may be that he just wants to focus on this strength question, and that's why he's just obsessed with the law and order talking point. And, of course, in the last couple of days with the fall of tech stocks and worries about the lower number of jobs being increased, that can't help. That's right. The unemployment numbers that came out uh, today were not bad, um, but you do see the tech stocks tumbling. Um, and if you look ahead, I think there's a lot of trouble on the horizon. Um, the uh, minimal aid that he was able to push through to some states is going to expire soon. Uh, you've got eviction moratoriums expiring. Um, you have a lot of small businesses that have managed to pull through thus far, but are really on the edge. And if there's not major congressional aid, are probably going to tip. And there's not really much prospect for major congressional aid. There is some prospect of a small bill that might come through the Senate and would probably be rejected by the House. Even there, Senate Republicans are divided. Uh, so I think there's a lot of bad news on the horizon. And um, the White House may recognize that and just be reluctant to put a lot of their hopes on the economy when the economy is not going to get a lot better and may, in fact, still get significantly worse between now and the election. Back to Kenosha. Talk about Joe Biden's trip there. And, you know, even public figures were saying, well, Joe, you've ignored Wisconsin for so long, and now you're here. It's all, all about politics, and you don't really care about Wisconsin. How well or not well do you think he did? It's interesting to, to think about how this might play in a wider sense. A lot of the uh, punditry and also the arguments from the Trump campaign uh, kind of focus on the idea that simply going there and checking the box is a really powerful thing. And if that's true, Biden checked the box. But when Trump goes somewhere, he tends to see a lot of people. He does these big events. He'll do a rally. He'll, he'll be in a large public space. And part of that is that he's much more cavalier about COVID than Biden is. Biden is much more careful. And as a result, he's not seeing that many people. They're much more limited events. So he, you know, he went and he met with the Blake family. 
And he also held an event in a church. I think insofar as the substance of these events, they really play to Biden's strength. He loves to be in places where he can show sympathy. And I think that shines for him. People like that comforting presence that he gives. He had um, some interesting conversations with Black Lives Matter protesters uh, in Kenosha. That stuff plays his strengths, whether it is penetrating outside of you know, the, the national cable news and then the immediate local context, I don't have a great sense of this point. More of my conversation with David Graham when we come back. Hi, Kojo Namdi here. I hope you're enjoying On My Mind, and I also hope you're checking out the Kojo Namdi Show. We connect the dots between events happening in Washington, Maryland, and Virginia through conversations with politicians, artists, chefs, the list goes on. You can listen to our podcast on demand by subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Here's the rest of my conversation with David Graham. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. You and others have said that Trump seems to thrive on chaos. And the chaos in Wisconsin is right up his alley, increasing the amount of fear among white voters in a key state. Do you still believe that? I think Trump very much enjoys chaos. Um, He likes to have it around him. He likes to keep people off balance. Uh, And I I do start to wonder whether he really thrives on chaos. I think he believes that. But it's harder and harder to see the evidence that it actually works well with voters. Um, You know, when there are moments of of potential division, he he jumps right into them. He likes to stir things up. Um, But that hasn't, you know, we've seen that he's just a, he's an unpopular president. His approval rating has never been very high. His party got pounded in the midterms. So even as he is stuck to this chaos strategy, it hasn't paid off for him really since the 2016 election, Um, which makes me think that maybe, in fact, chaos wasn't paying off for him in 2016. It was simply that other things were working for him. Um, You know, concern about immigrants and dislike of Hillary Clinton were all just working in his favor, and those uh, managed to cancel out the chaos. The chaos itself was never really maybe the asset that uh, I and others believed it was. And, of course, um, Joe Biden pointed out that, in fact, Mr. Trump, you are the president. You promised you would take care of all this, and you're not doing it. Still, voters apparently think Democrats are less capable of controlling crime than are Republicans. I think a lot of this comes down to, you know, long-standing impressions about the parties. Um, you know, these are stereotypes that have been in place for a long time and they, they continue to stick around. I'm interested to see how uh, the 1994 crime bill plays in the rest of the campaign. In the Democratic primary, it was a, a real albatross for Biden. And a lot of his rivals pointed out that he had been behind this major bill that was, you know, increased mass incarceration, had strong penalties. Uh, and I, I think that it probably did hurt him with young voters. But now I wonder if that neutralizes some of the attacks from Trump. It's harder for Trump to paint Biden as soft on crime when Biden has this bill in the past. Biden may be reluctant to say that himself explicitly, um, but, but voters are aware of it. And I'm, I'm interested to see uh, whether it, it helps to neutralize that. 
So considering how Trump did in Kenosha, do you think that Biden's demeanor, his individual meetings, his showing up at the church, do you think that helped him with white voters, swing voters in Wisconsin? I don't know. Um, I, I do think the calmness and empathy is a nice contrast for him. I, I'm hesitant to guess at what the longer, you know, what the, the effects will be in the, in, within a couple of weeks. But to a great extent, Biden doesn't need it to help him. What he needs to do is do no harm. When you're up in a race, um, you don't need, he doesn't need to, to gain a lot of people. He's got a lot of those voters on his side. And Trump's goal is to pull them away, get the people who are sort of weak Biden supporters or leaning toward Biden and scare them. And if Biden can simply hold on to them and, um, and keep the race where it is, that's a situation that works for him. So he's got a, a good defensive position. So Trump is trying to capitalize on fear. Absolutely. And that's the question, how <laughs> successful he can be using that strategy. I, I mean, I think the problem is, as you pointed out, he is the president. And, and so your, your fear of what? People already know what a Trump presidency looks like. They see these things happening in his context. It's hard for him to say that things will get a lot worse um, when they're already bad and it's been under his watch and when voters think that he is, in fact, making them worse already. Um, Trump's refusal to even talk about Jacob Blake and yet talk about Kyle Rittenhouse, who was a supporter of Trump. Talk about the different ways he talked about or didn't talk about the two men. Yeah, Trump's discussion about Blake is interesting. He, he has not even said Jacob Blake's name, as far as I know. He certainly hadn't a couple of days ago. Um, and he reached out about a meeting with the Blake family, but when the Blake family said they wanted to have their attorney on the line, he declined that meeting. Biden, when he met with uh, the Blake family, lawyer was, in fact, was present via telephone, and he, he agreed to that condition. Um, so you see Trump sort of declining to say names and, and to express sympathy. He says, uh, you know, officers, they, they choked, they had a bad day. He writes it down to, you know, simply an error of judgment. He said somebody choked. Right. He said it was like missing a three-foot putt in a golf tournament, um, which is an incredible thing to say about somebody being shot in the back seven times. Um, and we, we have come to expect not a whole lot of empathy from Trump. It's just not a mode that he does. He, he doesn't really relate to people on that, that level. And to a certain extent, that has clearly worked for him. Um, his supporters like the sort of strength and, and resilience, and they don't need that softness, apparently. But then the contrast with how he talks about Kyle Rittenhouse is, I think, really striking. And he says he's working in self-defense, and he says the police need to work it out, but he's clearly very sympathetic. So it doesn't take a, a whole lot of discernment to see how differently he talks about a black man who was shot in the back seven times versus the young white man who is his supporter um, and killed two people, according to allegations. And now, today, here in Washington, we hear about the death of yet another black man. Um, you know, this sort of keeps going on. And as it happens, the sympathy toward Black Lives Matter grows among many. And yet, 
for Donald Trump, it doesn't seem to make a difference. How does he talk about Black Lives Matter? There's a real shift going on um, in the American electorate, uh, even even apart from the election. Um, There just seems to be a real awareness of police violence that there wasn't. And even the highly uh, covered cases from the Obama administration, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, um, Eric Garner, these made an impact, but they didn't seem to make the same sort of impact with white voters that George Floyd's death did. Um, And it's not entirely clear why that is. I think part of that is the video was so compelling uh, and plain. Of course. Um, and I think part of it is that uh, people are more attuned to race now than they were. The, the Trump years have been so focused on race that it's, it's top of mind. But there is a shift going on. And Trump simply has not caught up with that shift. Uh, it would be a tough shift for him to make, I think. You know, you've seen him um, endorsing police toughness going back years. And he, uh, he, he's always wanted a very long order approach. Um, I think back to him taking out ads in the New York newspapers, uh, calling for very harsh treatment of the Central Park Five, who were, of course, then vindicated. During the 2016 campaign, um, talking about Blue Lives Matter was a real staple of his, his election speeches. So it, it's a tough moment for him to get to grasp onto um, because of his background and because of the way he talks. And he has, seems to simply be missing that shift. He's called uh, Black Lives Matter a, a hate group. Um, he says they're spreading division. Um, he's denounced them. He's called them anti-American. His administration has talked about prosecuting leaders of them. So even as the American public becomes much more sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, uh, Trump is getting, if anything, maybe a little bit more belligerent toward them. You said that Kenosha could be Trump's undoing. Some have said could have the same effect on Biden. That's right. I mean, I think Biden has to worry that um, there are white voters who have come to his side and they were upset about George Floyd, um, but they're going to be rattled by the prospect of wide scale protests. They might have been supportive earlier this summer. Uh, they, they were glad that people were coming together. But for them, maybe enough is enough um, and, and people need to stop burning down businesses. That's not acceptable. Uh, I think that's a really plausible outcome. And, and when people speculated about that, I, I think they were not say a week ago, I think they were not out of line. But um, between what we saw in June, which is this big shift in support, and what we've seen so far uh, in the last few days, people are supportive of Black Lives Matter. They don't think Trump is making things better. And they are more sympathetic to the way that Biden is talking about it. So in the upcoming election, just barely two months away, how important do you think public safety will be as an issue? Yeah, it's going ha- to be a conversation. As you say, these incidents keep coming up. Um, it, it's a repeated parade of, of deaths. Um, and I, I can't see any reason why that would change in the next two months. Uh, but I think for voters, it's, it comes down to the pandemic still being a more important issue. Uh, so no matter how people are upset about this, uh, and no matter where they are, it doesn't seem to be what is affecting people's votes as much. What they're worried about is the fact that they uh, are stuck in their homes, or their children can't go to school, or they can't see their families, or uh, their businesses are closing because the pandemic is simply not in control. And are you at all concerned about mail-in voting? I am concerned about mail-in voting in a lot of ways. Um, I think we still don't have a great sense of how many people will mail-in vote, and we don't know if boards of elections are prepared for that. We've seen some really slow counting in primary elections, particularly in big cities. 
places like Philadelphia. And those have been helpful in a way, I think, that puts boards of elections on notice that they need to be ready for it. But they don't know at this point how many voters are going to vote in person and how many will mail, and that makes a big difference. What I worry about, um, one, you know, the first thing I worry about is that people won't get their ballots in time and ballots won't come in, and so there will be votes lost that way. The other thing that I really worry about is um, a, a situation where on election night, um, Trump appears to have won and he's, he's leading in states like Pennsylvania or Michigan. And then as mail-in votes come in and are counted later, uh, the balance shifts and it puts Joe Biden ahead. You'll have Trump claiming that this is fraudulent and illegitimate. And, and I think that's a really dangerous point for democracy and faith in elections. So what can be done to encourage people to vote early now that Trump has encouraged people to vote twice. <laughs> you know, the one silver lining of Trump's comment is he told people to send in their mail-in ballots and to get them in. Uh, so that's good. I, I, you know, I, I think um, there's increasing voter education and a focus on this. Uh, people are starting to understand that they do need to request these votes early. Uh, and they can't wait till the week of the election and they need to move. But, you know, they have to actually do that. And it's, it's a weird process. People aren't used to sending in mail-in ballots in some states. Um, they will have to learn new rules and these things will have to be counted. So a lot of it is just sort of trying to get the public aware of the delays and, and aware of what challenges they might face so they can get it done. But how are people going to react to Trump saying, mail your vote in and then on election day, go and cast your ballot? I mean, you see election officials are appalled. I mean, they're, they're terrified by the, the prospect of huge lines at the polling center from people who have already cast their votes. There's a matter of, of actual votes being, you know, people voting twice. There isn't, doesn't be much real risk of that. The system is made to prevent that from happening, uh, whether it's malicious or simply an error. Um, so it's not, that's not the problem, but the problem is you could get the system overwhelmed by people doing this. Uh, and that is a, that's a real worry when we've already seen long lines and we've already had problems counting the votes in a timely way. David, before we close, is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? You know, I've been thinking most of the time recently about mail-in voting and about the effect of these protests, so I think that about covers it. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. That was David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic. And that's all for today. Thanks to those of you who've reached out to let me know what you'd like me to cover during this very difficult time. Please continue to let us know what's on your mind. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email, drpodcast at wamu.org. Our theme music is composed by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. The show is produced by Rebecca Kaufman, Allison Brody, and Sandra Baker. Thanks for listening, all. Please continue to wear those masks for yourself and others. Stay safe. I'm Diane Reem.